Today on the Craft Room Podcast, we are going to talk about your amazing creative vision, where your skills are now, and how you can get them to meet up. This is Episode 9. Welcome to the Craft Room Podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Lewis, professional crafter, craft teacher, and all-round craft enthusiast. This podcast will help you get great value from your craft supplies and perhaps help you discover new techniques, ideas, and products to take your crafting to the next level. There is so much craft to talk about, so let's dive right in. Hey, welcome to the Craft Room Podcast. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. And if you are new here, a special welcome to you. Now, as you may have guessed by my quick intro, we are going to chat about those frustrating early days of crafting. You know, when we pick up a new craft or we start to pursue some new creative endeavor, there is inevitably frustration because you have this firm idea in your head about what you want your finished piece to look like, but it's just not up to your standards straight away. And honestly, I do not know a single creative person who hasn't been through this exact scenario. So I'm going to start with a little story. A few years back, a friend of mine asked me for some advice. She'd started creating gorgeous little handmade things for the first time in her life, and she wanted to know how she could go about turning her newfound hobby into a little business. Handmade and business are two things I could talk about all day long, two of my favorites, and we did. We actually spent an entire school day talking about just that. Pricing, materials, batching, social media, how to choose the right market, all that kind of stuff. But constantly through the conversation, there was something that was really bothering her and she'd bring it up over and over again. And I noticed it. She had this clear picture in her head of how these things should look when she made them but they were falling short of this vision that she had. And she was so frustrated. I completely understood because I've experienced the exact same thing. Every time I pick up a new craft, I have to go through this process, but I couldn't quite explain it properly, what it was going to take to get her from where she was now to where she wanted to be. It was, I just couldn't articulate it as well as I wanted to. I'm not sure she really did get it. But some years later, I came across this quote by Ira Glass. He is best known from his radio show called This American Life. And this quote, it said, everything I wish I'd been able to say to my friend on that day. Now, it's usually referred to as the gap. I've seen it worked into beautiful memes and printables and videos by other creative people who must also agree because this is what we wish every single person knew from day one. So what I'll do is I'm going to read this quote out to you, but in the show notes, I'm also going to link to a video that illustrates it beautifully for those who like the visual, the original audio of Ira Glass saying these incredibly profound words, and also a print version for those of you who prefer to read it. So here's what he said. Nobody tells people who are beginners, and I really wish someone had told this to me is that all of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's a gap that for the first couple of years where you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's really not that great. It's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, your taste is still killer and your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you, if you know what I mean. 
a lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I would just like to say to you with all my heart is that most everybody I know who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste and they could tell that what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it fell short. It didn't have the special thing that we wanted it to have. And the thing I would say to you is, everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, you've got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you can do is a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month, you know you're going to finish one story because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you are actually going to catch up and close that gap. And while the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions, it takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while and you just have to fight your way through that, okay? Now, seriously, Is that not what everyone needs to hear in those early days? I feel like he's mostly speaking to writers, maybe uh, journalists, maybe authors, maybe poets, maybe playwrights, because he does say finish a story. And this equally applies to people in the art world. So I feel like this would be widely accepted for artists. But this is 150% applicable to crafters. We are creative people doing creative things. Every single time I have picked up a new craft, starting from scratch, I have a vision, I know what I want it to be, and it's frustrating. It's so frustrating for me to turn something out. I know how to craft, I know how to make things, but still, if it's a new medium, if it's a new thing I've never done before, it's awful at the beginning and it's so frustrating. Uh, When I was teaching folk art painting, I had a All my students went through this. I watched them all go through this. And when you're painting, there's this, it's almost like you go through this phase in every painting. You you know the finished piece, you know you're following a pattern, you know what you want it to look like in folk art painting. And I would always say to the girls taking my classes, they'd be really, oh, it's not, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And I'd say to them, it's in its ugly phase. You, And that means you are nearly there. You're nearly there. And the number of times they'd come into the next lesson and they had painted over it and sanded it back and given up on it when they were actually just about to come out with the final steps and turn it into something incredible was heartbreaking for me as a teacher. And when they eventually did trust me and did you know, fight through that ugly phase and got to the end and finished their piece, they had to agree it came out really well. It matched the picture they were trying to match it to as they learned the strokes and learned how to, to do all these painting techniques. And it it's like he says, you have to fight your way through it. You just have to push through. Even when you feel like you've hit the craft wall, you've got to push through to get to that end bit where you achieve your vision. But yeah, at the beginning, I mean, I would make paint blobs and Copic blobs and things wouldn't blend and there'd be uneven stitches and my seam ripper got used a million times and I would mutter swear words under my breath at my tools and occasionally there would be shouting and sometimes tears. It's just what you have to go through. It's the creative process. Now, there is honestly, as he said, only one way to bring your current skills up to the level that's going to make that ultimate finished piece and that is 
practice. And I know we don't always like to be told this. I mean, practice, uh, who wants to practice? I want to be good at this right now. But you need to practice. And when I say practice, you just need to make a lot of stuff. I'm not going to say to you that practice makes perfect, mostly because I am a recovering perfectionist. Perfection is pretty much impossible. It's incredibly difficult, if not impossible to achieve. But so what I will say is practice makes better. Now, there's another story I read online. It comes from a book called Art and Fear by David Bales and Ted Orland. I'm going to link to my source in the show notes. And it's a story about a ceramics teacher doing a little experiment on his class. So in this little story, the ceramics teacher said on the first day of class that he was going to divide the class into two groups. The ones who worked on the left side of the studio would be graded solely on the quantity of work that they produced. And those who worked on the right hand side of the studio would be assessed on the quality of work. So he had this simple process. What he would do on the final day of class, he'd bring in his bathroom scales and he would take the people on the left who had to do quantity and he would weigh the volume of their work. So if they got, you know, 50 pounds of pots, they'd get an A, 40 pounds would get them a B, etc. But those who were being graded on quality, they only needed to make one pot, but it had to be perfect to get an A. So think about it. All through the year, can you imagine those who were being graded on quantity, they would just make stuff, just make and make and make and make and make because the more they made, the better grade they thought they were going to get. And then those who just need to make one quality piece, they were looking at texts and they were watching videos and they were researching all of this theory because they didn't they didn't have to rush they could take their time to learn all of this stuff when it came to grading day on the last day a very curious fact emerged the works of the highest quality were all produced by the group being graded for quantity so while the quantity group on the left side of the studio was busy churning out piles and piles of work They were learning from their mistakes. They were refining their skills. They were figuring out the best way to do stuff. And each time they made it, they'd do it better because they'd have the muscle memory and and they could make it better and better and better. And those who were on the right-hand side of the studio who only had to make one quality piece, they had sat there theorizing about perfection for a year. And in the end, they had not a lot to show for it because it's by experience you can really make the beautiful thing. So uh, as the author says, in the end, they had little more to show for their efforts than grandiose theories and a pile of dead clay. Now, in all my years of crafting, I've found this to be true. If I'm designing a crochet pattern and I really, really need to get it right, which for magazine publication, you really need to get your pattern right. On a side note, I was teaching a student a couple of weeks ago in my crochet class and she was working on a magazine pattern. The pattern was wrong. A magazine pattern was wrong. So for me, when I've been designing for magazines, I want it to be really, really right. And so I will not just make it once and send it off. Oh, no, no. This again, it's like any good science experiment. I'm going to create something as 
I write my pattern as I go and then I need to see if I can recreate the piece by using my original notes. Can I replicate it? And every single time without fail, I would find mistakes in my written pattern. I would find flaws in my original design. Uh, the more I would work it, I would make adjustments. I'd figure out better ways to do things and the better the piece would become. So for example, there's a crochet owl pattern that I made in my very, very early pattern writing days. I actually think it's the first original thing I made. I made it at least a dozen times before I was happy with the end result. And the first few I made were awful. They were really awful. What didn't match the picture that I had in my head. I kind of knew I was on the right track, but I had to rework it and rework it. I had to make another one and make another one and make another one and make another one. And in my decluttering process that I went through in November, I actually threw out about four or five of them. Well, I pulled them apart. I pulled the stuffing out because I could reuse the stuffing, but the rest went in the bin because they weren't good enough to sell. In my eyes, they weren't good enough to donate. And they just they weren't good enough. They weren't good enough to send to the magazine. Absolutely. And even when I was learning to crochet, it took a really, really long time to get it right. I had no idea how little I knew about crochet. And just when I thought I knew it all, something else had come along, like a new stitch or or this revelation that there was US and UK terminology and then another bombshell that you could actually get crochet charts and that there were three different symbols that I might come across that were the same stitch. Like, mind blown. It took me ages to wrap my head around that. It was really confusing. I wasn't making good work. It was really frustrating. And I had to learn how different plies of yarn worked. And I had to figure out how different hook sizes affected the yarn and how to splice in a new colour seamlessly. Just getting comfortable with yarn and hook in hand takes a really long time. So if you're sitting there wondering why your cards aren't as good as you want them to be or why the corners aren't lining up on your quilt tops or why your embroidery stitches are uneven or your knitted hat is entirely the wrong size, there's only one thing for it. You just need to make a lot of things because it's in the hands-on experience of making that you learn. You need to make things, but you need to make mistakes and the repetition, this is how you figure out your personal preferences, how to tweak something so you like it, how to create on the fly, how to get the best results from your materials. I mean, often we pick up a pattern and we can't get the same materials that they use in the pattern. So we have to figure it out and we have to tweak it and we have to just make things to learn how they work. It's just pure experience that does this. Now, it might take a long time. Maybe it won't. I, I really find that the more crafting experience you've got, the faster you can adapt to a new craft. But hands down, the best way to bring your skills up to meet that amazing vision that you've got is to get hands on. You might be sitting there and thinking to yourself, well, Dawn, it's all very well and good for you to tell me that I have to make a lot of things. That's going to leave me with a lot of things. So here's a little issue of volume that I want to address. What do you do with all the things you make while you're building your skills and you're building this big body of work? I promise I'm not going to leave you high and dry up to your elbows in dolls or quilt tops or cards or knitted jumpers without suggesting a few things. So here are my top four suggestions of what you can do with the pieces that you're making in your pursuit of excellence. Number one donate them. There are so many amazing charities that you can craft for. Do a Google search and do not forget to add your country. So for example, you could Google crochet for charity in Australia 
or just Crochet for Charity Australia. A whole bunch of websites will come up. I've done it. I've seen it. I checked. You surely can find a charity that you love, that needs something that you can make at your current skill level. Now, often I find there's a pattern provided and there are guidelines. And these days you'll often find a Facebook group dedicated to it as well. So you can be in a virtual group of people, a community who are all making the same thing for the same organization. And they're going to have a lot of hints and tips to help you out. You know, they'll be all working with uh, different materials from all over the world. And you're likely going to find some assistance there. Now, when it, and this is just crochet, you could crochet octopuses for NICU units, booties and bonnets for angel gowns associations, pouches for orphaned wildlife, uh, vests for penguins who need help after an oil spill. That's just a few off the top of my head. So go search for your particular craft and see if you can create pieces to donate. It does a bunch of things. It's great skill building. It makes you feel really good. It can fill in empty time. And the best bonus is that you aren't filling up your house with whatever it is you're working on and wondering where on earth you're going to put another crochet blanket. You can also look at donating locally, perhaps to a charity looking for prizes to raffle off for their fundraiser, school Mother's Day stall, uh, nursing homes to give to residents, Ronald McDonald House, hospitals, hospice units, tons of places that would be delighted to receive your handmade donations. In this spot, I'm also going to talk about the expense of doing this. So when you are sometimes working for a charity, some of them will provide the materials that you need, which is amazing. I used to work with an organization called Angel Gowns for Australian Angel Babies, where people would donate wedding gowns and seamstress volunteers would turn them into tiny gowns for uh, babies, angel babies, babies who haven't made it through and they need something very, very, very tiny to wear for their parents to bid them farewell. I used to crochet for them and sew for them and I did a lot of admin gear for the stuff for them as well. And they would provide the wedding dress. I didn't have to go out and buy wedding dresses because hundreds and hundreds of people were donating them and people would also donate thread and all that kind of thing. And so the local coordinators would have materials for me to use, which was fantastic. And then there's also a, a charity called Blanket Loves and people donate tons of quilting fabric. I know that my local quilting coordinator is looking for people to just sew up the fabric that's been donated. So this way you're not facing an expense. So if you are on a tight budget and you're wanting to make a lot of things to build your skills, but you can't afford to buy a lot of materials, because let's face it, some crafts are really expensive. You can look for ones where they have the materials. They're just looking for somebody to put them together. So it means that you're not out of pocket you're making something, you're supporting a great charity and you don't have to find a place for this thing that you just made in your house. So that's a, that's a quick thing I wanted to address there. Before we move on to gift them, giving handmade items as gifts. Oh, what a wonderful idea. A lot of love goes into a handmade gift. This is where I'm going to offer a word of warning. Not everybody appreciates a handmade gift. So test the waters with something small and see how it's received. Please also keep in mind, this is not necessarily a personal slight on you. It's just that not everybody understands or appreciates or even likes handmade items. I can tell you from experience, it is absolutely heartbreaking when you put hours and hours and hours of effort and expense into making something amazing for someone and they don't use it or they don't like it or they 
are rude about it. That's the worst one. Well, actually, maybe it's not the worst one. They bin it. That happened with a handmade gift I made once. The recipient threw it away or they donate it. They don't, they don't understand. It's absolutely soul crushing and I don't want you to have to go through that. Handmade gifts aren't for everybody. So test it out. Maybe test it out with a handmade card first, even if you're not a card maker. If you've got a friend who does make cards, buy one of them. They'll be chuffed they'll be so psyched if you give a handmade card that can be a really good indicator when the person opens it as to their reaction to something handmade some people love them but some people they actually think you're being cheap these are the people for whom i recommend purchasing a gift instead of making one save yourself the distress and the inner rage as well as the time and the effort and the money and save your beautiful handmade creations for people who really do appreciate them when you give a hand, these handmade things that you're making to sort of build your skills as a gift, this means they're out of your house. It can also mean that the money you've already spent on the making translates over into what you would have spent on a gift anyway. And sometimes when you're on a budget, you can actually make things that are amazing for less than you could buy them. A handmade quilt is not one of those things, but it depends where your budget is. And honestly, I've given boxes full of handmade cards as gifts at Christmas one year when I was really skint. We were really doing it tough and everybody loved them. My cousins and aunts and everybody loved them. They thought they were great. I didn't actually have to go out and buy anything because I had a huge stash of stuff at home. I probably should have left myself more than a week to make boxes of 10 cards for seven people. All of a sudden I went, oh my goodness, I have to make 70 cards. But it was a great challenge and I made 70 cards and I put them in and for the younger ones, I gave them lots of engagement and congratulations and graduations and birthday cards. Uh, for my grandmother, I gave her probably more on the way of sympathy cards and birthday cards and thinking of you cards and get well soon and sort of it just depended what sort of place I thought they were at in their lives as to what kind of cards that they would need and honestly they were really well received and and speaking of received uh, I actually received several of them for my birthday a couple of months later so that's how I knew the people liked them I think my mum even framed one because she liked it so much she didn't want to give it away so making a handmade gift and giving away the things that you're making to build this body of work and build your skills can be a really good idea number three sell them we have all had this moment, I'm sure, just like my friend, when we think to ourselves, hey, maybe I could sell this. Or maybe a friend or a work colleague sees what you're making and goes, hey, that's fantastic. You could sell that. This is why I had a handmade doll business for quite a few years. I bought this beautiful Raggedy Ann, modern sort of style Raggedy Ann pattern off Etsy, and I was obsessed with it. And I was obsessed with getting it right. This was back in the days before I was what you'd call a recovering perfectionist. I was really trying to make this doll perfect. And I'd been sewing for so long. I've been sewing since I was 10 years old. And still, the first half dozen dolls I made, they were awful. They were just so awful. Again, I found a few doll bodies that didn't even get decorated. They didn't even get faces or hair. They were just so bad. And I'd crammed them in a box and crammed the box in a cupboard. And I ended up tossing them when I did my declutter in, in November. But I just, I, I kept remaking it and I would remake it and I would remake it and I would remake it. And 
by the time I got the bodies right, I'm like, I'm happy with the way this goes. My, I figured out what I needed to do, how to get around corners and how to put legs into bodies and get the stuffing right. I figured out all these great things to make it work. Then I, I started embroidering faces. Now that took ages because I suck at satin stitch. I'm really bad at it. I made a lot of Raggedy Ann dolls. By the time I was happy with my workmanship, then I started having ideas for how I could make them look and how I could tweak them and make them a little bit more modern and use bright colours, kind of like country muted. I like it, but it doesn't come out of me naturally. Everything that comes out of me is quite bright colours. And then I would get ideas for the clothes, how I could add in my other crafts to embellish the clothing, like use smocking and use different embroidery stitches and do painting and all these ideas. It's before I knew it, I had dozens and dozens of dolls in the house. I couldn't find anywhere to donate them to because they had yarn hair and they weren't child safe. My kids had enough dolls and I didn't have any nieces or nephews back then. So I opened an Etsy shop. And to my very great surprise and delight, they started selling and then I was sold out and and there was demand and I had to make more. And then I kind of got bored with the Raggedy Ann's. I found a different pattern because I wanted to make something that was a bit more child friendly, something little kids could play with. It could be machine wash and then they could play with it again. So I found another pattern and um, again, even though I've perfected the Raggedy Ann. I had to work up about a half a dozen of these before I really got it right. And then I started selling those. And that one doll style kept me busy for about four years. And I made hundreds of those dolls. And so they all went to little girls and boys all over Australia uh, who loved them and played with them. And I actually did see one several years later, probably about three years after I made it. And it held up really well. And that made me really happy. And, And the little kids still loved her special friend doll which was fantastic so don't discount selling them what I will say here is just because you've you're making something doesn't mean you have to sell it and you do need to be putting out great workmanship before you can sell it you don't want to sell something to someone and have it fall apart you need to be confident in your workmanship before you sell but it doesn't mean it has to reach perfection and that upper level before you sell people like all different kinds of things so long as your workmanship is solid then definitely you could think about selling it it's going to help you clear some of this body of work out of your house so that you've got some more space and it also brings some money in so that you can invest in new materials and you can keep working on on bettering your skills. Number four, reuse them. This one depends a little on what it is you're making and what your materials are. Now if you're learning to sculpt with clay, Make something, photograph it from all angles and smash it down and reuse the clay. It gives you the experience, but you're not left with dozens and dozens of sculptures or pots or something that you don't know what to do with. Yarn is another good example for this. When I was learning to crochet, I'd sit in front of YouTube, I'd make the piece, then I'd unpull the whole thing, restart the video and do it again. Now, eventually the yarn would become too matted to use or I'd be happy with what I did and I'd, I'd tie it off and I'd go, here's a finished piece. But, you know, part of a ball of yarn was a sacrifice I was willing to make to hone my skills without filling my house with little crochet things. And if you're a painter, you can paint over a used canvas. So that's a great option if down the track you kind of look back at your original pieces and go, oh, that's awful but you're kind of running out of space and running out of canvases, go photograph the original piece. I think it's great to keep a record of your early work. It shows you how far you've come. Uh, I also think it's great to keep your very first piece. But go back, take a picture of it, record it, 
paint over it, sand it down, paint over it, start again. It's going to save you some money and save you a lot of space. And for some other crafts, you might not be able to just undo the whole thing, but maybe you can repurpose some materials. So if you're a card maker, maybe you can go back to your earlier cards and, and pull off, you know, um, gems and brads and flowers and things like that. If you're sort of not happy with the finished card and you feel it's done its job, it's taught you what you needed to learn, but you want to reuse the embellishments, pull the embellishments off, put the card in the recycling and reuse the embellishments and you know, maybe take a photo of it so that you can, you know, show a before and an after shot. So as I've been chatting away, something else has come to me about building up these skills because it honestly, it can take years. And if you want to fast track that a little bit, a great way to do that is to take a class or do a course. Because when you're working with a teacher who's experienced in the craft that you are learning, They've been there. They've done that. They've done the hard yards. They know all the tips, all the tricks, the shortcuts, the ways to get great results. It's kind of like paying for a cheat sheet. Absolutely. You still need to put in the physical work and you still need to make the things. But instead of sitting at home, muddling it all out for yourself, you'll have a guide. So your teacher can explain to you how to fix this thing in your machine and walk you through it while you do it. A good teacher will make you do the work. They won't just do it for you. They'll walk you through it and they'll show you how to fix the thing that's it's bunching up your seams. They can correct your brush strokes. If you're doing it at home, you're going to do it for a really long time before you figure out it needs correction. Whereas when you're sitting there in real life with a teacher, they can correct it for you. They can point out where you're going wrong so that you can get it right and progress faster. I mean, when I teach crochet, the first thing I tell my students is point out the difference and I give them a cheat sheet that has the difference between US and UK and chart terminology. And these are things that happen right there on the spot. You're getting this instant boost. It's like a turbo boost for your learning. Yes, you still have to make the things. You need to get your hands used to working with the tools. You get muscle memory going on. You become familiar with the tools. They become comfortable in your hands and using them becomes second nature. You don't have to think so much. It goes into your long-term memory and you can just sit down and work. Craft teachers are an excellent resource. And as a craft teacher, I've got to say, when a student goes past my own skill levels and I, I'm, I'm out, I can't teach them anything new. They've, they've taken everything I've taught them and they're now beyond it and they want to keep going. It is one of the most proud days of my life. I'm very comfortable with the fact that I'm not a specialist. I'm here to get you started. That's, that's my place in the craft ecosystem. I'm here to get you started and I will very delightedly hand you on and forward you to a master, a specialist in that craft if you want to go further with it. It's just, it. a lot of people would think I'd be upset because my student knows more than me. On the contrary, I love it when my students eclipse me because they blossom and then they are moving into that vision part of their crafting. So if you are in this phase of frustration, just remember, it's only a gap. It's just a gap and you can bridge it at your own pace in your own ways. Make the beautiful things, practice, seek help and enjoy the journey. 
Thanks so much for joining me in the craft room today. You can find links and other information about today's episode in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. I'd really appreciate that. I do hope you have a very crafty day and I will see you next time. Bye for now.